Well, let's begin our time with a word of prayer and then we'll read our verse for this morning. Our Father, we come to you this morning eager to glean the wealth and the riches found in your incredible word. We have great need of sanctification. We have great need of being made more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pray that our time in your word this morning would bring us closer toward that end, toward that goal of Christ-likeness, of sanctifying our own hearts, that we might live lives that are worthy of the gospel. Help us this morning to not only be hearers of the word, but doers also to the praise and glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. We're moving on to our next beatitude this morning. Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. Our series in the Beatitudes is focused on the joy, the the blessedness of being found in Christ and found in being in Christ. And all the benefits, all the results, the results we see listed in the second half of each of the Beatitudes. And today our focus is on joy for the reconciled, joy for the peacemakers. Matthew 5 verse 9, Jesus continues In the Beatitudes, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. God is called the God of peace in Scripture. It's a descriptor for Him. Romans 15.33, He is the God of peace. In 2 Corinthians 13.11, He is the God of love and peace. Philippians 4.9, the God of peace. In all three of those passages, Romans 15, 2 Corinthians 13, Philippians 4, there's a wish being expressed that the God of peace would be with you. So it's a, it's a wish, it's a prayer expressed specifically to Christians, to those who are in Christ. Because for the non-Christian, God is not a God of peace. God is a God of war. The non-Christian was born at war with God and the non-Christian continues that rebellion against God and his refusal to bow to Jesus Christ continues that struggle, continues that fight. And so God is not a God of peace to the one who has not made peace with God. But Jesus here in this beatitude, he uses a compound Greek word not found anywhere else in the New Testament. It's a broad, expansive very, very broadly uh, based word. It's unexplained. It's just peacemakers. And I think it's important that it's unexplained because it, it lends itself toward us digging deeply into understanding what Jesus is speaking of here. This is a word that covers the gamut of everything that you can think of at the intersection of being a peacemaker and a genuine follower of Christ. Everything that happens at that intersection. That's why I mentioned that for the non-Christian, being a peacemaker is not possible with God. You you have a bigger problem. But peacemaker is clearly a relational word. It's peace between two parties. And as we'll see later, it certainly includes the dynamic of peace between people. And toward that dynamic, that topic is, for me as a shepherd of Christ's church, it's a major concern 
It's a major concern of every shepherd who attempts to be faithful. One of Satan's most effective weapons to diminish the effectiveness of a church or in many cases to do permanent damage to a local church is to pick, you ready for this, the least peacemaking person or the least peacemaking couple in the church to pick the most proud, the least humble, the most argumentative and the least forgiving and place them in the center of a conflict. And in no time at all, many people are polluted and violated, even to the point of sides being taken, controversy being rehashed. And the result is a terrible distraction from the proclamation of the gospel, a a diversion from discipleship with those who humbly desire to learn, humbly desire to grow in Christ-likeness and relationship damage happening now that may take years to heal. This is an example. There's a reason that the Apostle Paul told the Thessalonians that one of their duties to shepherds has to do with peace. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, and 13, Paul gives three commands to the members of the local church concerning shepherds. They're to know the shepherds, they're to regard the shepherds highly in love. But the third command is live in peace with one another. Why is that included as a duty toward shepherds? Because just two people in the church who refuse to get along or refuse to properly resolve a conflict historically can derail the whole church because it derails the shepherds from the larger duty, the shepherd, the entire flock of God. Well, this morning, here's the main idea I'd like to demonstrate. I'd like to demonstrate that the genuine believer in Christ is characterized by peacemaking. The genuine believer in Christ is characterized by peacemaking. And I'm going to finish that sentence in a minute. I haven't finished it yet. But we'll start off with the genuine believer in Christ is characterized by peacemaking. But before we dive into what peacemaking is, I need to remind you of what peacemaking is not. Peacemaking is not trying to bring peace to the world or to the nation or to the state or to the city or the county or your neighborhood through politics, through social action, through community programs, or anything else that doesn't deal with internal heart change. That's not being a peacemaker. You want to run for office? Great. The more Christians in office, the better. But you won't bring peace. You won't do it. Peacemaking is not pacifism. It's not pacifism. In fact, as we'll see shortly, the pathway to peace is usually pain. The pathway to peace is pain and confrontation. A refusal to deal with conflict which needs to happen is not righteous. In fact, it's unbiblical. It's unloving because it doesn't care for others. Peacemaking is not peace at all costs. Peacemaking is not peace at all costs. This is a a so-called peace that denies obvious realities. The man in his home being run over by an unsubmissive wife is not being holy and, and pious by saying, I'll just be quiet and be a peacemaker. No, he needs to initiate a conflict because there's someone in his home who is disobedient to the Lord. He is to do so lovingly and gently, but nevertheless, this is a duty. Same goes for children. If you are... God love you, a parent who's trying to reason with an 18-month-old. They are, by definition, unreasonable. You need to initiate conflict on a regular basis. Peacemaking is not a position of self-righteous piety. It's not a position of self-righteous piety. 
Peacemaking at times involves creating discomfort to reach peace. Creating an uncomfortable situation. Creating sparks. Lighting the fires of conflict. Peacemaking is not a means to be popular. It's not a means to be popular. Even in church settings, I've seen people who take sides with the one that they think will inflict the most emotional damage if they don't take that person's side. Instead of having the courage to confront the person who's in the habit of making everyone around him or her pay emotionally for being honest with them. And most importantly, peacemaking is not a truce. Peacemaking is not a truce. Genuine peacemaking is not just the the ceasing of hostilities. It's the righteous finding of common ground, of choosing to love one another, of softened hearts, of a true desire to please Christ by preferring the other. If the issue isn't dealt with, then that's not peace, that's a truce. And it never lasts, does it? Now, let me finish my main idea I'd like to demonstrate this morning. The genuine believer in Christ is characterized by peacemaking in four spheres of influence. The genuine believer in Christ is characterized by peacemaking in four spheres of influence. The first sphere of influence, you and God. You and God. Now, if we're going to be really precise, this isn't actually a sphere of influence in which you have any say-so, This is a relationship in which God has chosen to demonstrate His grace to you. But I include this to show you the basis for peacemaking. This is the foundation. This is where you have to begin. The basis for peacemaking is reconciliation with God in salvation through Christ. And just to make sure that we're clear, when Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God, He is not saying... God looks kindly on peaceful people, and because they're peaceful, they shall be called sons of God. That is not correct. This is the characteristic of a believer, not the pathway to becoming a believer. The peace that you have with God was initiated by Him. It was His work. It was a monogistic work, a a, a lone soul work of God. Another word for this peace is reconciliation. And we see this in Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And in verse 10, for if we, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Now, I want you to notice something. At the outset, even in this sphere between you and God, the pathway to peace is pain and confrontation. Did you notice why peace came to you as a believer in Christ? Why you were reconciled with God? You were reconciled through the death of His Son. It took violent death to bring peace. The death of Christ, this horrific act by sinful men, and yet it was part of the plan of God to pay the penalty for your sin. It took death to bring peace because it was the death of Christ which satisfied fully the righteousness of God. And when righteousness is gained now, and only now, is peace gained. And so in the sense that you've received the peacemaking gift of God, and that you've responded in repentance, and you've made peace with God by humbling yourself to worship Him and Him alone, you are a a peacemaker. But to be very, very clear, again, the Beatitudes aren't so much a call to salvation, but a call to demonstrate the reality of your salvation. 
Genuine believers are peacemakers. But that brings us to the, the second sphere of influence, and it's just very a logical progression. First, we started with you and God. You're also a peacemaker in the sphere of God and others. God and others. I think it's very helpful to understand the Apostle Paul's description of the gospel ministry. And he does so in very succinct and, and profound manner, the ministry of telling the good news of Jesus Christ. Here's the ministry. 2 Corinthians 5.18, God reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That's what it is. The ministry of reconciliation. This is a, a Greek word which means to make things right between two parties. Or it means to exchange one thing for another. To exchange something bad for something good. It's not an even exchange either. Just a few verses later, Paul explains this exchange in 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You hear the exchange? And it's very uneven. Jesus Christ gives you his imputed righteousness and takes away your deserved unrighteousness. But the ministry of reconciliation speaks of the fact that you, as one who's been reconciled to God, as one who enjoys peace with God, you are authorized, in fact, you're commanded and you're commissioned to offer this same peace to anyone else. Have you ever thought about the weightiness of that idea that you are authorized to make peace between men and God? That's a stunning thought. To say to others, I was born at war with God as a sinner. I was a rebel. God has made peace with me and he's offering you the same peace and that all you need to do as the one bringing peace between God and man, between God and others, is go to the scriptures because the gospel is the power of God for salvation to those who believe. We read this, these verses earlier in Colossians 1, 19 and 20. For in him all the fullness of Christ was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, whether things on earth or things in heaven. That God was at war with you. He was after you. He was coming after you. The only thing keeping you from the depths of hell was God's righteous and kind hand to keep you from death. But he was coming after you and hell was definitely in your future. And yet in his grace, he, he grasped you out of that destiny and he changed your fate, as it were. He changed what was going to happen. And instead of coming after you for judgment, he came after you in grace. Because truth be told, you were running toward hell as fast as you could get there. And fortunately, God runs faster. But does the same principle hold true that the pathway to peace is pain and confrontation? It is true. Don't sugarcoat the gospel. When you're presenting a pathway to reconciliation between God and man, you cannot sugarcoat the gospel. There's pain involved. When Peter finished preaching this scathing, convicting sermon on the day of Pentecost to the unbelieving Jews who were all party to the death of Christ, the Spirit of God moved in the listeners and they panicked. They were panic-stricken. 
Acts 2.37, now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men, brothers, what should we do? And Peter said to them, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What's the pain? What's the confrontation? Peter was confronting the fact that they were not right with God and they stood condemned for the death of Christ. And what's the pain? The pain is that they must repent. They must acknowledge their brokenness. They must acknowledge their sinfulness. They must acknowledge their rebellion. You don't come to God making a deal with Him. You come to God on His terms and His his terms only. There is pain in repentance. There's pain in humiliating yourself before God to admit your need. There's pain in throwing out all the idols of self-righteousness, all the idols of self so that you may serve only the living God. As a matter of fact, there may be very real pragmatic pain in giving up the sinful lifestyles which characterize your life before Christ. Giving up being a drunkard, giving up being a drug addict, giving up being sexually promiscuous, giving up being a habitual liar or excuse maker, which is the same thing, giving up being greedy, giving up being a cheat. Repentance means turning away from those things that you once thought gave you pleasure. But through the pain of humiliating yourself in repentance, symbolized in baptism by dying with Christ and being raised up with Him as well, identifying with Him and Him alone, through that pain comes true and lasting peace. There's a third sphere of influence. You and others. You and others. We're going to spend some time on this one. The believer in Christ cultivates a quality of peaceableness, a keen discernment as to when to engage in a dispute and when not to. It should be rare. It should be thoughtful. It should be purposeful. But part of being a peacemaker is knowing when to involve yourself in dealing with an uncomfortable matter with another person. If you decide that your strategy for dealing with brokenness in the relationship is to simply avoid the topic or worse, avoid the person, this is an act of self-protection. It's sinful and it's extremely unloving. And on the other side, to refuse efforts by others to engage in bringing together a relationship, this is a sign of pride, a sign of self-protection. And you give off the aura, so to speak, of a peacemaker, but in fact what you're doing is avoiding true and genuine peace. I've been a pastor long enough to see this principle at work that the seemingly quietest person in the church may in fact have multiple unresolved conflicts with many other people. This is a form of spiritual violence by keeping others at a distance from you. You have a responsibility to attempt to mend a relationship whether or not you feel you are the offended party or the offending party. And rarely is it that black and white. Because generally, even the offended party responds sinfully in ways that now have to be dealt with. Either way, you have a responsibility. On the one hand, you have a responsibility to go to the one who has sinned against you. Matthew 18, 15, Jesus said, Now if your brother sins, go and show him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. And, and what's the tone of this conversation? The Apostle Paul tells us the tone, Galatians 6.1, Brothers, 
Even if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Each of you looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted. In other words, before you go talk to that person, you're examining your own heart. You're, you're cleaning your own heart of any wrong motives. Now, to be very clear, Paul says here a spirit of gentleness That's the tone, but there may be a time to increase the tone, to turn up the volume, so to speak, of that conversation. Paul gave the Corinthian church a choice when they needed serious correction. 1 Corinthians 4.21, What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? So you have a responsibility to go to the one who sinned against you. But on the other hand, you also have a responsibility to go to the one who has something against you. Not even necessarily with the belief or understanding that you've actually sinned against that person, but just trying to make peace. Jesus gave this command in Matthew five twenty three. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Now I want you to know this. Your ability to worship God is dependent on this. That it's more important to God that you get that relationship right than it is that you show up to church. Because getting that relationship right is an act of worship. Now why is this necessary? Why is this so important? Because sin is a barrier to peace. You cannot have peace where unresolved sin exists. You can't have it. And yes, going to the brother or sister may stir up pain. And the response to your approach may be terrible. Or your response to their approach may be terrible. And quite often you might be tempted to avoid dealing with a conflict because of the emotional quagmire you find yourself in. Nobody says, you know, I just think I'm in the mood for a good conflict today. I think I'll go step in that quicksand and just kind of ruin my whole week. I want you to notice something, both Matthew 18 and Matthew 5, these are commands. These are not helpful pieces of advice from Jesus. Jesus never gave advice. He gave commands. If you go to a brother and it goes sideways, if you go to a sister and it goes sideways, then Matthew 18 involves other people at times, even all the way up to the whole church. That's how important peace is to the head of the church. To not deal with those things doesn't preserve peace. It just makes an ungodly, unpleasing, unholy truth truce. It, that's not peace between brothers. That's not peace between brothers. Now, to be clear, as your pastor, it's not particularly my hope that a bunch of you all get excited about exercising Matthew 18. That's not my hope. But it is my hope is that all of you get excited about exercising Matthew 5, 23 and 24. Going to a brother or sister who may have something against you and you humbly ask what's needed to mend that relationship. And on the other side, once you proclaim your forgiveness of someone, Luke 17 commands continually repeated forgiveness based in, in repentance, then you act like it. You're kind, you're tender, you're loving, you're drawing near, you're not creating distance. Listen carefully. If you create distance after having said, I forgive you, your forgiveness was a lie and it's heinous before God. Because God never lies and His forgiveness to you is always, always perfect. 
This is the exact reason God was killing people in the Corinthian church. They were proclaiming one thing but doing another. What is forgiveness? Let me give you a simple definition. Forgiveness is a covenant that you make with God, with yourself, and with another person that this sin will never be held against them or mentioned again. It's a covenant you make with God, with yourself, with another person that you're never going to mention it again. You'll, never, you'll act as if it's never even happened. How does God deal with your sin? He, he casts it as far as the east is from the west. He sinks it to the bottom of the ocean. He's nailed it to the cross. It's paid in full. Then honestly, if somebody comes to you that you've proclaimed forgiveness for an action or for a thousand actions and they say, I'm just telling you one more time that I'm so sorry for what happened here. Your response is to say, why would you say that? I don't even know what you're talking about. Now you want to go get something to eat and you act like it. But to say, well, I forgive you, but there's still going to be distance. That's a lie. Can you imagine if God did that to you? Well, I forgive you and you can come to heaven, but you can't see me for 10,000 years because I'm still mad. I know this is uncomfortable. I know this is difficult. And yes, it is true that trust may take time to build. Trust is different than forgiveness. Trust takes some time, but forgiveness is never said to take time. Forgiveness is to be instant. Jesus gave this example in Luke 17. It's a, it's a hyperbolic example, a joke almost. It's ridiculous that if somebody comes to you seven times in a day and says, I repent, boy, that's heartfelt, isn't it? What do you do? I forgive you. I repent, I forgive you. I repent, I forgive you. Seven times in a day for your awake hours, that's once every two and a half hours, a brother or sister has stepped on your emotional toes and says, I repent, you forgive them. There's no time lapse. There's no, let me think about it. I know this is difficult. I know this is uncomfortable, but oh, what terrific guidance we have in Ephesians 4.15. The guidance is this, that we speak the truth in love. That we desire the best for the other person. That we can imagine what it would feel like to be continually in a state of lack of forgiveness with another. And so we would never do that to someone. And we find whatever points of common ground or agreement we can, we assure the other of genuine love. We've dealt with our own hearts first. We don't approach in anger. We approach in in self-control. And on on the other hand, if someone is coming to us, we put on humility. We put on listening ears. Instead of the immediate prideful reaction of fighting back or, or fighting our corner, let me give you a simple three-step way to deal with someone coming to you in a godly manner. It takes a little bit. Of, we don't usually do this, but it takes a little bit of physical action on your part. There's a three-step way. Step one is raise your hand. You can do it. It's okay. We're not charismatic, but we're just raising our hands. <laughs> Step number two, turn it down. Step number three, put it on your mouth. That's how you deal with someone coming to you. And if you say nothing, Proverbs says you will be thought wise. Let me paint this scenario for you. Grace Bible Church receives an email from heaven. The subject line, Christ's coming evaluation. And the email says, Dear Grace Bible Church, Next Lord's Day, Christ will be giving his evaluation. He will be revealing publicly all broken relationships that anyone has not attempted to mend. He will be outlining all hidden bitterness and anger. 
Take heart, your salvation is not at stake. Your salvation is secure. The future of your church is not, however. You say, oh, that sounds silly. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. This is what the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says, I know your deeds, but I have this against you, that you have left your first love. And what does Jesus go on to write to the church at Ephesus in Revelation 2? Repent, or I will take my lampstand from you. Where is the church at Ephesus today? It's gone. Now, some have debated whether this first love is love for Christ or love for one another. It's a silly debate. The fact is, is that one goes hand in hand with the other. In my time as a pastor, I've observed that many believers truly don't know how to make peace with one another. I've had Christians tell me to my face that the way you make peace is to, is to, to fight and to, to just be aggressive until everything gets laid on the table. There's, there's no scriptural precedent for that. A fight and a conflict are two very different things. We might engage in a false peace that's more of a truce without actual communication, actual repentance. We might even engage in some sort of emotional bonding moment where everybody cries a little and everybody hugs, but the core issue was not actually dealt with. True peace can't be attained by calling a truce. Genuine peace is attained by confrontation, by repentance, by humility, by conflict, which is aiming for one thing, restoration and peace and closeness, and by true forgiveness, which chooses graciously to treat the other as if the offense has never happened. There's one root cause to an inability to properly resolve conflict as a Christian. That one root cause is pride. That's the only root cause. Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of Yahweh is to hate evil, pride and arrogance and the evil way in the mouth of the perverted words I hate. Proverbs 21.4, Haughty eyes and a proud heart, the fallow ground of the wicked are sin. All of us as Christians, myself included, we, we struggle with this dynamic of properly and biblically dealing with conflict and having been witness to it so many times, times I've, I've lost track of how many as a pastor, I've kept a little list of why people have an inability to resolve conflict biblically in the church. I've narrowed the list down to 10. First one, not understanding 1 Peter 4.8. Not understanding 1 Peter 4.8. 1 Peter 4.8 says, love covers a multitude of sins. Doesn't mean sin isn't dealt with. It means that grace Listen carefully, grace is always the flavor of the day. It means that discernment is used as to whether something was a, a sin, a sinful pattern, or what, is it an anomaly? Is it unusual? It means that the principle of endless forgiveness from Luke 17, that every time a person repents to you, you forgive, that that's always in play. It means that you have an endless capacity to forgive because you're forgiven endlessly. By God. When Peter said, how many times should we forgive? Up to seven times? Now, I wasn't there, but if I was going to take a guess, based on the fact that a righteous Jew was said to forgive up to three times, when Peter said, how many times should we forgive? Up to seven times? I wasn't there, but I can imagine Peter looking around going, (laughs) that's pretty generous, I think. 
And Jesus said, no, 70 times 7. Oh. Endless. Endless forgiveness. It's the second reason Christians have difficulty resolving conflict. A sinful refusal to believe the best. A sinful refusal to believe the best. 1 Corinthians 13, 7 says that love believes all things. Meaning that unless you have hard evidence to the contrary, you always give the benefit of the doubt. You always construct in your mind the best motives, the best case scenario. Instead, many tend to do the opposite, to assign the worst possible motives, to believe the very worst. And this is when you start having those, those long conversations with yourself in the shower or in, when you're driving in the car. Well, you should, you know, and somebody walks by and you're, you're there pointing your finger at somebody who's not even in the room. That's the opposite of what you ought to do. This very quickly grows into a self-made bitterness which renders one person literally unable to look at another. That is an indicator of a heart cancerous with bitterness. It's the third reason, self-righteous anger. Self-righteous anger. This is anger on your own behalf. Anger at not having your expectations met, at not getting your way on something, of believing you deserve something that you're not getting or you don't deserve something you are getting. And very often this masquerades in your own heart as righteous anger. How do you know it's righteous anger? Because you told yourself so. Well, this is righteous anger. But when vindictive attitudes and actions become apparent, then the charade of righteousness is very quickly over. Here's another reason, a lack of discernment between sin and preference. A lack of discernment between sin and preference. In Matthew 18, Jesus said, if your brother sins against you, he did not say if your brother does something you don't like or don't agree with or that you wouldn't do or he hurt your feelings or he disappointed you or he said no no to you when you wanted him to say yes. Sin is specifically defined in Scripture The person who is habitually deeply offended by non-sin issues generally causes undue damage and undue conflict. This is the person who can only be at peace with someone who's exactly like him. That takes discernment. Is this an actual sin issue? If it is, can you point to chapter and verse? Can you point to commands that are being broken? Here's a fifth reason we have difficulty resolving And dealing with conflict biblically. Not believing God's sovereignty. Not believing God's sovereignty. Now, we are very reformed here at Grace Bible Church. We love and we cherish the doctrine of the sovereignty of God. So perhaps maybe you're saying, well, that's good. I can check that one off my list. I believe the sovereignty of God. Do you? Because it's one thing to say, yes, I believe. Lamentations 3.38 Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both calamities and good go forth? Yes, I believe that. It's another thing to say, this calamity in my life, this difficulty with another person is part of the sovereign plan of God for me and for my sanctification. Even if someone has sinned against me, it's my duty to see this as the Lord's loving discipline in my life to make me more like Christ. I will obey James 1 to be joyful through this trial. I will embrace what the Lord has to teach me because He brought this trial to me. He gave it to me. He's inflicted this pain. He's done all of it. And I can be okay with that. But fury and anger, which maintains its heat, is actually a refusal to really believe in the sovereignty of God. That God ordained this trial. 
Here's the sixth reason we have difficulties. A refusal to genuinely listen. A refusal to genuinely listen. Just to review step one. Step one. Step two. Step three. That helps you listen. What most people do is step one, step two. (laughs) What does it mean to listen? It means, listening means that you listen until the other person says, you've heard me. Proverbs speaks of listening 35 times at a minimum. Proverbs 18, 13, he who responds with a word before he hears, it is folly and shame to him. By the way, you can't engage in a reasonable conversation with someone when you already know they're not hearing a word you say. You just have to stop the conversation because it's not helpful. Here's the seventh reason we have difficulties. Having the mindset to win. Having the mindset to win. This happens by damaging the ordained process of relationship restoration by taking your case to others, building a following, gaining supporters. This is one of the most common tendencies in the church, and it's one that's literally caused entire churches to split over one stupid issue between two people. And eventually a whole church gets just raked over the coals. How about this instead? Be wronged for a lifetime, keep your mouth shut about it, and trust God to sort it out in eternity. That is an option. It is an option to be wronged all the way to the grave. It is an option to take that difficulty and just decide you're going to let it be okay. I don't mean not confronting sin. I mean not starting a fight when you don't have to. You don't win. We like to tell this to parents with teenagers. If your goal is to win that relationship, everybody loses. If your goal is to win any relationship, everyone loses. Here's an eighth reason. A refusal to discipline your mind. A refusal to discipline your mind. Very, very familiar verse to us. So helpful. Philippians 4, 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is dignified, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence in anything worthy of praise, consider or think on these things. Now, what's the context here? Just a few verses earlier, Paul is dealing with a conflict in the Philippian church. He's dealing with a conflict. That's the context. And you might say, but I've tried. You might say, but I can't discipline my mind. I've tried. The author of Hebrews says you have not. Hebrews 12, 4, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. When your mind is going down a road that you know is sinful, have you done everything possible Have you texted your wife or your husband and said, my mind is going where it needs to go. Pray for me right now. Hold me accountable right now. Have you opened your Bible and said, I'm going to stand outside in my backyard and read at the top of my lungs the book of Leviticus until my brain gets in the right place. Or you might say, but I can't. What does Paul say just a few verses after saying, consider these things? He says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's not that I can't. It's that I won't. Here's a ninth reason we may have difficulties dealing with being a peacemaker. Pride which cannot hear correction. Pride which cannot hear correction. Now, I want to be clear about this. Not all correction is legitimate, and we understand that. Even just since I've started preaching the Millennium Series on Sunday evenings, 
I am now getting letters every week from people all over the country correcting my theology. And so a couple of them I've written back and said, thanks for your graciousness. Some of them are just silly and so I don't respond. But the question to ask is, is there a little truth to this that I could hear and that could form a bridge to that person who is correcting? When I read a letter, just for an example, that says your theology is totally wrong, da 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 that usually goes in the trash. That's not a, a legitimate correction. I know my theology and I know how I arrived there. But if he said at the end of that letter, the way you're presenting your theology is unloving, I would probably call him and say, thank you for telling me that. In my time in the gospel ministry, I have been amazed at the lengths people will go to to avoid an uncomfortable conversation. Gossiping to harm the reputation of another. Carefully crafting comebacks and defenses. Yelling, crying, blame shifting, making your hurt feelings the main issue. Look, so-and-so, I, I feel like you really ought to work on this particular sinful area of your life. Oh, you hurt me so bad. That's just blame shifting and making my feelings the issue. Giving a list of all the good things you've done, which actually says, I don't deserve this legitimate correction. Avoiding eye contact, avoiding a person altogether, purposefully creating distance in the relationship to prevent real conversations. On and on, the list is truly endless. I counseled with one man who lamented to me that in all the years of his marriage, his wife had never repented to him one time. Had never had a moment of brokenness. Always had a thousand reasons why he was wrong and she was right. I remember asking him what he thought that meant. And I'll never forget what he said. He said, it probably means I'm married to an unbeliever. This is proud self-protection at all costs. And if it's a consistent pattern, it may call into question the legitimacy of your salvation. Proverbs 13.1 says that a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. A scoffer in Scripture is consistently the unbeliever. Here's a tenth reason we tend to have difficulties in the church. A belief that God's discipline is for others. A belief that God's discipline is for others. If somebody ever tells you in the midst of an illness or a difficulty, well, God is disciplining you. You know what your answer is? Yes, He is, and I'm so thankful. Because Hebrews 12 says that proves I'm a child of the living God. That he disciplines those whom he loves. Or maybe another variation is that God's discipline shouldn't come through this difficult person or by having to humble myself to that person. But what does Hebrews 12, 11 say the Lord's discipline gives related to our topic this morning? Afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. I was reading this morning in Andrew Murray's just tremendous little book just called Humility. And he said something to the effect of, and I'm paraphrasing, if you're humble as low as you can go, nobody's confrontation bothers you because you can't go lower. Now, I know this takes discernment. We're not looking to stir the pot to create a lot of needless conflict. I'm shutting my email down this week just in case. (laughs) But my contention is that the healthy church, the healthy marriage, the healthy relationship between sisters in Christ, between brothers in Christ, needs more honesty and needs more as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. But toward that goal of discernment, let me share some times you should gently confront and sometimes you should not. 
Here's some times you should gently confront. Rebellion against authority. If you're the authority, you should confront this. If you're not the authority, but you see someone rebelling against authority, you should confront. This goes for the workplace, goes for the home, certainly goes for the church. Rebellion means anything from gossiping about a leader to disrespecting the leader verbally or with an attitude to flat out disregard him. I've counseled with families where mom is in the habit of slamming and running down dad to the kids. And what do the kids learn? No, that has to be called out. There's another time you should gently confront when someone is harming another or harming an institution. When someone's harming another or an institution, harming the home, harming the church. Paul commanded in 1 Thessalonians 5.14 to admonish the unruly, meaning the undisciplined, the out of step, the selfish. That there comes a point where the shepherds of Christ's church, for example, have to do more to deal with protecting the whole church than continuing to shepherd one person. This is why both Christ and Paul have instituted church discipline. When someone's harming themselves with sinful behavior, you must confront. When someone's harming themselves, the book of Proverbs is filled with wisdom concerning listening to another's counsel for your own sake. Proverbs 19.20, listen to counsel and receive discipline that you may be wise in the end of your days. And here's perhaps the most important time to confront. And some of you may have difficulty swallowing this. When someone you love is unsaved and refuses to come to Christ, you don't back off. You don't pull back. You confront. Listen to the words of Jesus. In Matthew 10, 34, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. In other words, Jesus didn't come to bring peace at any price. Peace is the result of strife and conflict. And yes, I know, you might say, oh, but in the millennial kingdom, he's called the prince of peace. You know how he made peace? With a sword. Peace is the result of conflict, of changing unrighteousness to righteousness. The gospel must bring pain before it brings peace. The good news is not God loves you and has a plan for your life. The good news is that God hates you and hates your sin and is going to send you to hell. But if you will receive Christ, he will love you and he will set his affection on you and you will be in his kingdom forever. That's the gospel. And you say, oh, that sounds a little harsh. That's just scripture. What is the sword Jesus brought? It's very likely he's speaking of what Paul calls the sword of the Spirit. The Word of God. The Gospel itself. It cuts deeply. It cuts into everyone who hears the Gospel. The unrighteous respond to that cut with indignation. How dare you say that to me? And the one being saved responds to the cut Open me all the way up. Reveal all the sin in my heart. Let me come to the cross fully clean. It goes through that pain. And I understand this is a difficult confrontation. And you might even say, but what if this unsaved person I love rejects me or shuns me because I won't stop pressing the issue of the gospel? So? 
This is eternity we're talking about. Who cares whether they like you? Who cares whether they want to come to Thanksgiving? Who cares whether they they won't answer your texts as often as you think they should? This is eternity. If you had it in your power, if they were on a, a train bound for a bridge that's out, if you had it in your power, you would throw them off the train so that they might not go off that cliff. How about this? How about confront now so that you can rejoice together before the throne of Jesus Christ for all eternity? There are times you should not confront. These are very common sense. When you're crossing into being a pain, how about that one? Believe it or not, the Holy Spirit does work in someone's life without your assistance at times. He convicts and teaches and causes growth. If you aren't sure, if you're being nitpicky and being a pain, then don't and pray for wisdom. Search your own heart and look for yourself. But if you're that person that everyone around you gets used to you pointing out every little thing all the time, you become unhelpful background noise. Here's another time not to confront when you don't have adequate information. When you don't have adequate information. Remember, love believes all things. And unless you have an airtight reason to see actual sin, not a preference you don't like, then believe the best and don't assume the worst. Another time not to confront is when you're angry only for yourself. This is probably the worst time to confront. When you're angry only for yourself. And and it's the worst motive. When a person sins against you, anger is going to be naturally and usually badly handled. If confronting someone is only because you're mad, that's not a righteous reason. That's the time to run from it. And you should not confront when you know you're likely to sin with your tongue. One of the difficult things about believers speaking into each other's lives is often the speaking part. The attempt to deal with the problem often makes it worse because of the manner in which it was approached. I know we've spent a lot of time on that realm. That's the one that we live in. But there's one more sphere of influence. What if two believers are at odds and you know it? What if there's two sisters in Christ at odds and you know it? What if there's a husband and wife at odds and you know it? Do you have an obligation? Do you have a duty? You do. Our fourth sphere of influence, we've done you and God, God and others, you and others. The only option left is others and others. Others and others. In Philippians 4, Paul famously publicly confronts the two women, Euodia and Syntyche, who are at odds with one another. It's clear public knowledge because Paul addresses them in his letter read aloud to the church. I think we would, uh, if we followed that practice, we would eliminate a lot of conflict in the church. Uh, Last Sunday of every month, we'll be reading out loud all the conflicts that we know of. Paul commissions one man in the church to mediate between them. He simply says in verse 3, to help them. And what's his reason? And listen to Paul's reason. It's to restore Euodia and Syntyche to gospel effectiveness. Because I guarantee you their effectiveness in the church has ground to a halt. And frankly, the effectiveness of everyone around them has ground to a halt too but to restore them to gospel effectiveness which they once enjoyed. I want to use a familiar text to help us with some practical wisdom concerning peacemaking with others and we'll, we'll finish at this text. Turn with me to Romans chapter 12. In Romans 12, how important is being a peacemaker? 
In this grand treatise on how church members are to behave toward one another, Paul devotes 7 out of 13 verses to the subject of peacemaking. And that treatise, of course, is Romans 12, 9 through 21. This is the basis, in fact, for our covenant and membership here at Grace Bible Church. I'd like to use the peacemaking verses, there's seven of them, to provide an evaluation. And certainly you can use it for yourself, but this is specific for you to use with someone who comes to you because this is the trap, isn't it? A dear brother or sister in Christ comes to you and says, I just need to share with you. And they end up dumping all kinds of gossip on you. And if you take that ventilation without steering them towards righteousness, you're a participant in that sin. A good verse for us to remember is Proverbs 18, 17. That a matter seems right till the other side is heard. So how do you help that person? How do you say, okay, I, I can't unhear this. There's a conflict between you and this person in, in, in the church or in, or in your family. I can't unhear it. So how can I be helpful? How can I be righteous? How can I rise above just being a, a ventilation partner? Oh, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Let's pray for God's discipline on that person. Seven questions for self-evaluation or self-confrontation. This is for you to ask, certainly yourself, but to ask the one who comes to you for help. Number one, how are you honoring the other person? How are you honoring the other person? And maybe conversely, how have you dishonored the other person? Like by coming to me, maybe. Romans 12, verse 10. We are to be devoted to one another in brotherly love, giving preference to one another in honor. Giving preference to one another in honor. What's the context? Verse 9, let love be without hypocrisy by abhorring what is evil, clinging to what is good. What is unhypocritical love? Well, maybe it's easier to show hypocritical love. Hypocritical love is, hey, brother, it's so great to see you. Glad to see you here. Wasn't that a great hymn? That was wonderful. Can you believe that guy over there? That's hypocritical love. How are you honoring the other person? Are you creating distance or are you drawing near? Are you being devoted, showing brotherly love? Or are you focusing primarily on how you can honor yourself and defend yourself? So second question, how is your humility in this situation? How is your, your humility? In other words, are your thoughts me-centered? Are you all about protecting yourself? Have you asserted that you have all the necessary information, which is almost never the case? Are you prayerfully treading carefully as one who knows that you desperately need God's wisdom and not just your flawed logic or rationale or worse, emotionalism? Romans 12, 16. We are to be of the same mind toward one another, not being haughty in mind, but associating with the humble. Do not be wise in your own mind. I am amazed at how many angry Christians believe they have a complete handle on a situation as if they're objective. Here's a third evaluation question. Have you engaged in any sort of vengeful behavior? Have you engaged in any sort of vengeful behavior? Oh, well, we're Christians. We don't, we don't act in vengeance, really. Paul says twice in this passage, don't. This includes everything from the silent treatment to creating distance. 
to quitting a ministry just because it makes someone feel bad? How about this? Along with that same question, are you remembering that the world is watching you and even unbelievers think that vengeance is wrong? Even unbelievers think vengeance is wrong. Romans 12, 17. Never paying back evil for evil to anyone, respecting what is good in the sight of all men. Here's a fourth question. Have you put forth every effort possible? Have you put forth every effort possible? Verse 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, being at peace with all men. Because if you can think of any, even one thing you haven't done, then you haven't put forth effort, every effort possible. You haven't obeyed this command to the full. And by the way, the attitude is not, well, as soon as so-and-so reaches out, I am happy to respond. No, have you put forth every effort possible? As far as it depends on you. Here's a fifth question to evaluate. Are you too eager for immediate justice? Are you too eager for immediate justice? Verse 19, never taking your own revenge, beloved. Instead, leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. with, With great discernment and hesitancy, could I substitute a word just to help you understand? Never taking your own revenge, beloved. Instead, leaving time for the wrath of God. God will deal with the rebellious unbeliever in judgment and he will deal with the rebellious believer in discipline, just not on your timeline. I read a study. What percentage of the time does God bring justice when you want him to? Zero. Never. Here's a sixth question to evaluate. Are you sacrificially, tangibly loving. Are you sacrificially, tangibly loving? You want to know what to do when you're in the midst of this difficult situation. Verse 20. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. This is the opposite that our sinful instincts tell us to do, isn't it? Now to be clear... If you have a sin that needs to be dealt with in relationship to another, giving of gifts is offensive. That's a form of penance, and that's sinful. That's the opposite of repentance. But neither do you intentionally create distance or emotionally punish someone. Instead, you you serve that person any way you can. And that's not for their good. That's for your good. Here's one more evaluation question. Are you being overcome by evil? Are you being overcome by evil? Verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Is your mind saturated with sinful, angry thoughts? Or can you genuinely say, I am reading and I am doing Philippians 4, 8 to put my mind on these things and here's how I'm doing it. Have you made a plan with tangible steps to overcome evil with good? This is how you can aid someone, others to others. If someone comes to you, you can immediately let Righteousness reign. You can be a help. Ask the questions. How are you honoring the other person? How is your humility in this situation? Have you engaged in any sort of vengeful behavior? Have you put forth every effort possible? Are you too eager for immediate justice? Are you sacrificially, tangibly loving? Are you being overcome by evil? I think I know many of you well enough to know 
that if somebody has the courage to ask you those seven questions after about question number two, you're going to say, I give up. I give up. I repent of my self-righteousness. I'm going to go to that person and just say, what does it take for us to make this right? Please don't ask me the other five questions. Well, what's the blessedness of the peacemaker? What's the joy? Jesus said, peacemakers shall be called sons of God. What does that mean? Well, first, like all the other blessings in the Beatitudes, it's future-oriented, that in the coming kingdom of God, the coming kingdom of Christ on earth, you'll be identified as one of the sons of God. You'll be identified as one of the children of God because your life showed the fruit of salvation. You were a peacemaker in all four spheres. But it also... Being called sons of God, what does that bring to mind? It means that God is saying, you have behaved like my son. You have been like Christ. Jesus Christ was the ultimate peacemaker. By his death on the cross, he made peace between God and all who would trust Christ's offer of salvation from sin. In the light of the gospel, Jesus himself is the supreme peacemaker, and he did it in all four realms, didn't he? All four spheres, making peace between God and man, and between man and man. And how did that peace come? It came through pain. It came through agony at the cross. Jesus is the ultimate mediator of peace. So you see, when you're a peacemaker, God the Father says, I will call you one who is like my son. What an honor. What a joy. What a delight. The peacemaking efforts of Christ made the difference between you experiencing the terrible wrath of God for all eternity and experiencing the glorious kingdom of Christ for all eternity. And if I could leave you with one last, very repetitive, very overly said thought, you will never forgive another as much as God has forgiven you. Never. So don't think you are somehow on God's level. But you can be like Christ if you are a peacemaker. I started off talking about being a shepherd in the church and if you'll permit me another moment or two. I pray for the salvation of the lost. Maybe even some of you here today and I certainly pray for your growth in Christ and for your sanctification and your Christ-likeness. But when I think about the whole church, when I think about all the Beatitudes, there's one that can take a church down. And that is a church that has enough people in it who refuse to be peacemakers. I'm very cognizant of Revelation 2 and 3. It's both inspiring and terrifying that the Lord Jesus Christ evaluates local churches. And I don't know about you. I'm not sure exactly how this works. I don't know if you've been involved in five churches in your life if when you stand in heaven you have to go from five different places or something like that. But Christ even today is evaluating our little church body that meets here on White Lane. And I want to stand before him together and have Christ say, you know, your building was a little ugly on the outside and 
parking lot had a couple of potholes in it. But you were peacemakers. You were peacemakers. I pray that for all of us. I pray that for myself. I pray that for our elders, for our deacons, for our staff. And I pray it for all of you. Because I'm making you a commitment. And that commitment is that I will be a peacemaker. And if I find out that someone in the church is refusing to be a peacemaker, I will take every effort possible to come after you and to urge you toward obedience. And I will gather the elders to do the same. That is for your good and for the glory of Christ. I don't think there's a person in here that would disagree with that. Amen? Let's be a peacemaking church before the Lord. Our Father, we come to you now eager, eager to be obedient to our Savior. Give us the power, the strength, and the might to be a church that even our community would say, Grace Bible Church is filled with the most peaceful, loving, humble, gentle, delightful people I've ever known. And I would like to know the God that they worship. Let that be our reputation, I pray, for the sake of the head of the church, our evaluating Savior, Jesus Christ.